We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. My favorite deep sleeper is John Brown from Pittsburgh State in Kansas. He's 179 pounds, but he was invited to the combine, and he ran a 4.34. On top of that, as an 18-year-old true freshman, he led his team in receiving. And then for three straight years, he was their offense. And on top of that, he was a dynamic punt and kick returner, and he also got the ball a lot out of the backfield, too. So basically, if he sticks on an NFL roster as a returner and then gets a little bit of action as a slot man, I could totally see him pulling a T.Y. Hilton. You are listening to Fantasyland the podcast that covers everything you didn't know you wanted to know about fantasy sports. I'm your host, Peter Overzet, and if you can't tell by that clip that opened the show, in this episode, we're talking all about predictions. Here to help me kick off this episode is Matthew Friedman, the editor-in-chief of Fantasy Labs and a producer of this show. Matt, it's been a while since our first episode all about spreadsheets where we uh, talked at the top of the show. Welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be back and relive that John Brown prediction, which is basically the crowning achievement of my career. Oh, yeah. I mean, I literally own John Brown on one of my dynasty teams solely because of you pumping him up before that 2014 draft. I mean, thank you so much for that. But also, how incredible does it feel from a fantasy analyst perspective to be able to nail a prediction like you did with John Brown? Yeah, it's really great. I mean, one of the cool things was the first time I had Evan Silva on a podcast, he said, hey, you're the John Brown guy, right? And I was like, yeah, you know what? I guess I am the John Brown guy. Oh, yeah, that that's awesome. I mean, once you uh, can add that to the brand, you uh, you got to take it. But, you know, Matt, I hate to do this to you. But in that same episode where that John Brown prediction came from, that was on the high stakes fantasy football hour. 
uh, before the 2014 draft, you also had another bold prediction that didn't play out quite as well as the John Brown one. And I'm going to play that for you now. My favorite is Bishop Sankey. He had strong production and he tore up the combine. And there are lots of guys in this draft who have the chance to be contributors, but I think only one guy with a chance to become LaShawn McCoy. Oh boy, Matt, that one didn't turn out quite as well as the John Brown one. Yeah, definitely not. But you know what? Actually, I still stand by the process. I still think, and maybe I'm just out there on this, I still think somehow Bishop Sankey could be a not horrible player. And maybe if we're thinking of this from a zero RB perspective, this is why you don't draft a running back in the first place. Yeah, and I think it just goes to show, you know, you can have a great process and that can work out really well on nailing a call like John Brown. And then that same process you could apply to Bishop Sankey and it could be a whiff. I mean, that just has to be really frustrating from a prediction standpoint, I assume. Yeah, it's the worst, but also it's the best. Well, Matt, we appreciate you stopping by to share with us some of your highs and lows of predicting NFL players. But we are now ready to dive into this episode all about predictions and forecasting. And over the course of this show, we are going to hear from some of the most trusted fantasy analysts in the industry. And even better, they each gave us some league-winning ideas for 2016. We are also going to hear from an expert in the field of predictions. And that expert is Dan Gardner. Dan's been writing about predictions for more than a decade, And he recently co-wrote the book Super Forecasting with the academic Philip Tetlock. Super Forecasting includes some incredible lessons about people who are good at predictions. And Gardner is going to fill us in on some of the traits they share. These lessons all stem from a study by Tetlock where he asked people to predict world events. I mean, think stuff like, will there be a coup in Turkey in the next 12 months? Which, you know, questions that are probably about as easy to answer as who will be the starting running back for the Patriots on Sunday? And then Tetlock studied the similarities of the people who were best at making those predictions. The book calls these people super forecasters. And Gardner says that they share certain ways of thinking, including what psychologists call being actively open-minded. These are people who want to hear different perspectives. They want to hear other views, other ways of looking at problems, other perspectives on the world. But you remember the old line about open-mindedness. The problem is don't be so open-minded that your brain falls out. That's the active part of active open-mindedness. When they're listening to other people's views and perspectives, they're analyzing them critically, saying, okay, that makes sense. I can make use of that. Okay, that's nonsense. I'm going to dispense with that and so on. So they're constantly doing that sort of work. As we were making this episode, it became apparent that the super forecasters that Gardner just described shared a lot of similarities with the fantasy analysts we talked to. We're not saying that our fantasy analysts are necessarily super forecasters, but the similarities are remarkable. Yeah, sure. I'll do uh, sanity checks, and that's not just for uh, preseason, but that's in season as well. And if I'm if I'm uh, ten or fifteen spots uh, high or low on a guy, uh, I'll try to find uh, the argument uh, for or against that player and see if it convinces me. And I would say sometimes it does convince me, and I might move the player uh, more towards uh, the mean. Or and sometimes I'm uh, not buying the argument. Uh, I stand my ground and uh, leave the player where I had him ranked. So it, it sort of depends on uh, the quality of the arguments that I can find. And, uh, and whether or not they could convince me. That's 4for4.com's John Paulson. 
Paulson is known for consistently being near the top of the Fantasy Pros Accuracy leaderboard, and he clearly shares some traits of a super forecaster. Another fantasy analyst, Kyle Wachtel of FanDuel, says that one reason to keep an open mind is that your initial opinion may have been formed without all of the important information. I will look into the other sides just to see if there's something that I missed. Um, it could be something as small as a report that may not have been widely distributed uh, and that I didn't notice that would greatly affect a player's usage rate or a spot on the depth chart or something like that. So I think it, it does help to kind of have an eye out on what other people are doing uh, just in case there is something that you didn't realize. We also talked to Jake Seeley of Roto Experts, who, like John Paulson, is no stranger to being near the top of the accuracy leaderboard, and also, like Paulson, is always looking for additional information to incorporate into his predictions. See what the rest of the industry is thinking. And I'm not saying that, you know, that's where you get your opinions from. But if I said Brandon Cooks is going to catch 1,500 yards and 15 touchdowns, but nobody else even comes close, and the next closest person has him at 1,210. Uh, So then I'm like, okay, I probably need to rethink that. So that's where I would say don't get married to it. But at the same time, I would say don't lack confidence in what you've done if you think you have the skill, if you've put in the time and effort, because projections do take so much time. If you think you're smart enough and you're doing your job right, you should be confident enough in your stuff. Hearing how our fantasy analysts think is great. But what's even better is that we asked each of them for a league winning idea for 2016. So not only can we see firsthand how they apply their thinking to fantasy sports, but you're going to come away from this episode with a concrete list of players that you can target in your upcoming drafts. I recommend, you know, whatever you need to do, pull out an Excel sheet, shout out to our first episode spreadsheets or a notepad. If you're old school, take some notes and I promise you're going to come away from this episode with a really good idea for how to attack your drafts. And so to kick things off, our first 2016 prediction comes from Jake Seeley, and he says to look out for a change in the Bengals' backfield. I think Giovanni Bernard can actually be that league changer for you because I think this is the year that Giovanni Bernard passes Jeremy Hill. I really think that if you look at what happened last year, Hill only averaged 3.6 yards per carry after 5.1 as a rookie. He's very touchdown reliant, had only one game over 6.8 fantasy points when he didn't score. And his yards after contact actually fell too, 2.8 to 2.0. On the other side, Bernard increased those numbers for himself, went 4.7 yards per carry, 2.4 after contact. He actually hit double-digit points in six games despite only having 15 carries once. And that's standard. That's not even PPR. And he only scored twice on the season. So this is still going to be a split backfield, but I think that he might be the one that's used more in the 60-40 split than we what we've seen in the past with Jeremy Hill, even if they are up with a lead, just because he's turning out to be the more effective runner. Keeping with the theme of running backs, Kyle Wachtel says to look for a running back who is so cheap, you can't go wrong. I'm looking at Justin Forsett this year. Uh, last year, Forsett had high hopes heading into 2015 uh, with... Mark Trestman heading into Baltimore and also coming off a career season. Uh, An injury kind of disrupted that, but I still view him as a high-end running back too um, in both standard scoring and PPR scoring. In this offense, still the receivers are a little suspect. Uh, They don't have a lot of possession receivers, um, so I could see them relying on the running backs. And uh, 50 receptions is is something that Forsett should be able to uh, reach as long as he stays healthy. And I don't envision... uh, Mark Tressman rotating running backs too frequently 
Um, and I can see him getting close to 300 touches, uh, which is what he was on pace for last year. So I'm, I'm really comfortable drafting him anywhere from the six on right now. You just heard Dan Gardner and our analysts talk about how having an open mind is important. Well, that's not the only trait shared by people who make good predictions. Another really important feature is that they have what psychologists call a growth mindset. These are the sorts of people who believe that, you know, if I try and I work and I fail and then I learn from my failure, I can get a little bit better. So I'll keep trying and I'll keep working and I'll get a little bit better. I'll get a little bit better. You might say, doesn't everybody think that? Well, no, they don't, because a lot of people have what is the sort of opposite mindset, the fixed mindset, which is the idea that somehow we're just born with a talent. And if you fail... Uh, you just give up at that point because you've revealed the limits of your talent. So these people are very much the growth mindset, which is why they keep at it and why they get better. If you remember Sean Corner from our very first episode, you'll also remember that he's been the most accurate expert in the industry over the last three years. Sean echoed a similar sentiment to Gardner's point about having a growth mindset. I, I probably started making projections 10 years ago and... Every year I, I learn something new and I improve on it. And uh, I'm probably going to be doing that until the day I die. You're, you're never going to get everybody right at every position. So there's, there's always going to be room for improvement. But perhaps the biggest takeaway is to remember that just believing you can get better at making predictions isn't enough. You really have to work at it. If you want to get better as a forecaster, it's a skill like any other. You have to practice it. And so in the same way that an athlete, a basketball player, says, I want to practice my free throws. How do I get better at free throwing? I'm going to stand at that free throw line and I'm going to throw free throws. I'm going to throw them over and over and over and over again until I get better. Well, the only way that practice works is if you get clear feedback. In other words, you throw the ball up and you see whether the ball goes in the hoop or not. And if you're not getting clear feedback, you cannot improve your skill. This idea that hard work and clear feedback can lead to improved predictions is important to John Paulson's process as well. I've been doing this since 2010, uh, rankings and uh, projections, and you do notice mistakes that you make if you are actively trying to get better. Uh, I'm sure there are analysts out there who, who rank weekly and, and don't really pay attention to what they got right or what they got wrong, but I think the vast majority of us are trying to get better. And uh, I guess re recognizing patterns and mistakes that you're making is, is, is something that uh, people have varying levels of skill at, uh, at seeing the mistakes that they made even locating the mistake and then being able to uh, figure out what you did wrong and then how to fix it. When we asked John for his 2016 league winning prediction, he tipped us off to a discounted running back. The number one thing I'm trying to do is draft Danny Woodhead in the fifth round of all my PPR drafts. I think he's a tremendous value there. He was the RB3 last year in the same role. And in 2013, playing under Ken Wisenhunt, who's back as the offensive coordinator this year, he was the number 12 uh, running back in PPR formats, and that was with Ryan Matthews getting 285 touches that year. So I, I feel like he's a real nice value. And if you look at his uh, receiving numbers, especially his targets in the red zone, he led all running backs and targets last year in the red zone. He led all running backs and red zone targets in 2013, and he was also the number one uh, red zone receiver in red zone catches in 2013 under Ken Wisehunt with 21. So I think uh, his role is pretty defined. He's not any more of an injury risk than anybody else going in, in the fourth or fifth round. And I think he may be a league-winning pick again this year. 
Meanwhile, Corner's prediction relies on taking advantage of the fact that fantasy football is a weekly game. I feel like a guy like Tom Brady uh, is an interesting guy to target. He's obviously suspended the first four games of the season, so if if you use sheer you know projected points for the season, he probably ranks in at about twenty two to twenty four quarterback. But if you if you actually factor in that you're not going to be getting a zero from him the first four weeks, well, you're going to be getting a zero from him. But if you have your backup, like let's say Tony Rome or Joe Flacco, if you have to play them the first four weeks and then you get Tom Brady after that, it actually grades out as the sixth ranked QB. So he's coming in a little too low right now at um, around the 10 uh, ADP quarterback. So I'm, I've been taking him around six and you get him at a pretty good discount. So taking a guy like that later on allows you to kind of bulk up at running back and wide receiver, which I think is really important this season. One of the biggest aha moments I had in talking to Gardner about predicting and super forecasting was the importance of looking to the past and helping you formulate a prediction for the future. I think there has to be a temptation to just always look forward, to look at the current variables, how you think those are going to affect a future outcome. But really, the past and how things have played out can really tell us a story and give us a good starting point for how to formulate a prediction. If I ask you, how likely is it that in the next year there will be a clash, a military clash on the border between Vietnam and China? Most people faced with that question, will immediately plunge into Chinese-Vietnamese relations today. They will start looking at the politics. They will start looking at, uh, you know, the statements of the two sides. They will ask, where are the military forces? What level of preparedness are they at? Well, that's what we call the inside view. That's the particular situation now. The outside view, or what a statistician would call base rate, is basically, okay, In Chinese-Vietnamese relations, how often are there military clashes on the border? You might find, say, there's one clash every five years. Well, that gives you a starting point. You use the base rate as a starting point for your analysis before you shift to the inside view, which is the particular situation now. We recommend always starting with the outside view first simply because it's the easy one to ignore and people don't naturally go to it. So it's better to start with the outside view, then move to the inside view, which is where we are psychologically inclined to go anyway. And the importance of starting with the base rate or outside view, as Gardner calls it, isn't just useful in making predictions about world events. Lots of the fantasy analysts we talked to shared a similar sentiment, including Jeff Ratcliffe, the director of fantasy at Pro Football Focus. We have to look at historic trends across the league. And if we're going to project a 15% increase in receiving yards, well, that's just not going to happen. So paying attention to those big trends, then sort of distilling that down, you want to go downhill, you don't want to go uphill, because I think you started a player you're you're reversing the process and then you can get yourself into a lot of trouble later on. So start with what's the average amount of plays this offense runs? What's their run pass distribution? What's their touchdown distribution? So what percentage of their touchdowns are coming on runs, coming on passes? And then start to figure out how do these players fit into that? And then ultimately you can start to figure out what their projections ultimately look like. So it takes a little while to get to that point of the individual player. But I find that, you know, through the process, though, what you ultimately learn about each team's tendencies, about the league tendencies, 
are really invaluable and can give you a better perspective than just simply looking at that player initially. Someone creeping up the industry accuracy leaderboards over the past two years is Pat Thorman, also of Pro Football Focus. He said that he shares Ratcliffe's approach to projections. Definitely take a top-down approach. Um, you know, look at snaps, different uh, you know run pass rates, and then just kind of you know go from there. You know, weave your way down to down to the bottom and, and see where those targets and carries and opportunities are going to go. And you're not going to be 100 percent right all the time, but you give yourself a lot better of a chance if you if you have you know that target base, that opportunity base um, to build off of. Thorman gave us perhaps the most contrarian prediction for 2016. But the cool thing is that you can tell it's grounded in the same process he just talked about. I'm going to go with Eric Ebron as this year's Tyler Reifert, or if you prefer, uh, 2014's Travis Kelsey, only uh, without the uh, Andy Reid problem. We always hear tight ends take longer to develop, but wind up still slapping these bus tags on guys prematurely. I mean, Ebron just turned 23. He's already dealt with different offensive coordinators, but he drops a few balls and we get impatient and, and now he's a bust or bad at football. He had a better drop rate than Eifert last year and drops are overblown in general. I mean, he's an athletic freak who improved across the board statistically from his rookie year. Uh, I mean, Ebron's probably Detroit's best red zone threat now that Calvin's gone. I mean, he's certainly the biggest. I mean, over 200 targets walked out the door in the offseason and Marvin Jones isn't taking all of them. They already threw to the running backs over 160 times. So unless Golden Tate is going to get 220 looks, so you know we're going to be in business here with Ebron. I think he has legitimate top five tight end upside, and he can be had in the double-digit rounds. Meanwhile, Ratcliffe told us that if you're looking for a potential league-winning draft pick, you might want to check out a late-round rookie from one of the league's best running games. One of the league-winning players last year was David Johnson. The player who stands out like that this year, though, could be C.J. Proceis. He's a guy who is built very similarly to Johnson. He's got speed. He's got ability as a receiver, comes from that receiving background. And he steps into this depth chart where a lot of people are looking at Thomas Rawls, and I have big cause for concern. We look at, first and foremost, he's coming off that ankle injury, still with no timetable for return. Uh, He has his team draft three running backs. And then beyond that, people are so in love with Rawls, but it's really only five games that this guy did anything last year, a super small sample size. So ProSize comes in potentially right away as the receiving back. And if Rawls doesn't get back on the field until the end of training camp or maybe even later, ProSize could Wally Pip him. I really like him. He's got tons of upside and you get him later on in drafts right now. Hang on to him through September. You might not get much there, but he's a guy later on in the year could be a huge difference maker. We are going to get to a lot more 2016 league-winning ideas throughout this episode, including some wide receiver predictions. But before we do that, we are going to hear from Gardner about how important precision is when it comes to making predictions. Just because it helps to start with broad trends, doesn't mean that eventually you can't get extremely specific with your prediction. In fact, it almost seems like people who make really good predictions operate under the mantra, aim small, miss small. Gardner explains just how specific the super forecasters can be in their predictions. And if you look at their forecasts, it's not just that they're using numbers as they are asked to do in the forecasting exercises. It's that they're using very precise forecasting numbers. So where you might say to somebody, what do you think the probability of so-and-so winning the election is? They might come out with, we tend to use round numbers because we are making subjective judgments. We're making guesses, in other words. 
we use round numbers. So we say, oh, I don't know, uh, 60%, 70%. And we'll think that that's pretty precise, but these people don't do that. They're much, much, much more precise because their thinking is very slow and methodical and they break problems down. And so they'll be far more likely to say 70% is what I might start at, but no, I might notch that up to 72% on the basis of X or 73% on the basis of Y. Pat Doherty, whom you might remember from our Roto World episode, gave us his prediction for fading Jamal Charles this year. And he gave us a strikingly similar level of precision as Gardner just described, almost down to the exact decimal point. It's probably way too high, but I'll say 72.3%. I'll say not quite three-fourths, you know, because still Jamal Charles. I mean, he could easily just smash through, like, all these dumb fantasy predictions and just, again, be the bell cow workhorse. So I've got to allow for... You know, still a fairly high percentage of that. I'd say 27% is good there. But Jamal Charles is still being drafted as if he's like vintage Jamal Charles. He's like being drafted as like a clear cut RB1. I think he's not only going to struggle to be an RB1, but might even struggle to be an RB2. You know, Jamal Charles has still never averaged fewer than five yards per carry in any given season. I mean, that's an absolutely insane statistic, but. He's coming off his second torn ACL. He's 29. He's going to turn 30 in December. And there's just never been a better time for the Chiefs, you know, to try to extend his career by making him a committee member. And I think there's a pretty knowing nod to that when they handed out these twin extensions to Spencer Ware and Sharkhandrick West. And you know, Ch- Charles will still do a little bit of everything and be like a great all-around player, but a little bit of everything can a lot of times kind of be a whole lot of nothing in fantasy leagues. And I just think that uh, the days of your Charles, you know, every week being a top three or four running back are going to be gone. And just because it's what makes the most sense, you know, he's a guy, he's a smaller guy. He's he's got two severe injuries on his resume now, and he's just not going to be able to go forever. I think they're going to dial him back this year. We mentioned base rate earlier. And even when you start with a good base rate, and you really sharpen your prediction to take into account all of the relevant info, you're still invariably going to be wrong. And that's the thing that makes predictions and forecasting so frustrating. I mean, your process could be perfect. You could have everything you needed to account for accounted for, and something still could happen outside of the realm of what you envisioned. And in fact, Gardner says that realizing that you're going to be wrong is valuable on its own. Well, George Soros was this amazingly successful financier in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, constantly made correct calls, which is why he made billions and billions of dollars. And when George Soros was asked, and still today is asked, why are you so good? He always says the same thing. Basically, I know that I'm bound to make mistakes, and so I'm constantly monitoring my own thinking. And so I tend to catch and correct my mistakes more often than, say, the other guy. Pat Mayo of Roto Experts might not be George Soros, but he does place a high level of importance on trying to catch mistakes quickly. I'm going to be wrong. I know that. You're going to make bad choices along the way. So figuring out which choices are wrong, hopefully, even if you can catch 30% of the bad picks you make or bad predictions that you make right away before it becomes finalized is really key. You just need to mitigate the impact that your bad decisions have because everyone makes bad decisions, but the teams that really falter over the course of a season are the ones that stick with the bad mistakes. So you just have to have that, I guess, intuition or see the evidence in front of you and believe it. Interestingly enough, 
Pat's prediction for 2016 is also based on this idea. He says if you draft someone like Kobe Fleener and then say things don't go right in New Orleans and he's off to a slow start with Drew Brees, you'll have a tough time getting away from that mistake. It makes sense that we're all invested in the picks we make. We think we made smart picks and we want to hold on to that belief that they'll pan out even if they start slow. But he says that the tight end you should target instead will be easy to get away from if he busts. Someone like Antonio Gates, who you can get in the 12th round, the 13th round, he's going undrafted in a lot of places, brings an element of consistency and relative upside compared to the position at a position which is incredibly thin. Like, not everyone gets to have Gronk. Only one player gets to have Gronk in their tight end slot. So a player that could feasibly be a top five tight end, I mean, he finished in points per game just outside the top five last year, presents a great deal of upside and stability for your team to make sure that you fill out each one of your spots, especially the lesser spots, with a lot of value from the draft. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to have more league-winning ideas from some of the best fantasy analysts in the industry and also more from Dan Gardner about super forecasting and predictions. Before Gardner and Philip Tetlock wrote super forecasting, Tetlock had written a widely cited book on predictions called Expert Political Judgment. It was the result of tracking predictions from political pundits over a 30-year span, and it yielded some amazing takeaways in terms of what matters for making good predictions. There were two statistically distinguishable groups of experts. One was a disaster. Uh, The other had real predictive insight, modest predictive insight, but real predictive insight. And so Phil did the data analysis looking for all the things that you might think would correlate to these two groups. And what he found is that, you know, the things that you think might work didn't, uh, you know, whether they had PhDs or not, whether they were from universities, whether they had access to classified information or not, none of this stuff mattered. The thing that did matter was the style of thinking. The two styles of thinking that Gardner mentions are now somewhat widely known as the fox and the hedgehog. Hedgehogs are people who are dogmatic in their thinking, while foxes are people who think pragmatically. Here's Gardner explaining more about foxes and hedgehogs. The hedgehog has one analytical frame, one analytical lens for looking at reality. And it doesn't matter which domain this person is making a forecast in, they keep using that same analytical lens to try and understand reality. And hedgehogs, they don't particularly like complexity. They want to keep things simple, which is easy to do when you only have one analytical lens. And they also want to have clarity. So they keep pushing their analysis and piling up reasons, further reasons why, yeah, it's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to happen. And so they become very confident. They're much more likely to say that something is certain or something is impossible. The fox, on the other hand, doesn't have one big analytical lens. The fox uses many analytical lenses. In fact, the fox will say, okay, well, here's one analytical lens, one way of looking at a problem, a forecast. Are there other lenses? I want to consult those lenses. I want to see the problem through those lenses. So they look at problems through multiple lenses. And of course, if you do that, you're going to uh, have a very complex analysis very quickly. But they're okay with that. Complexity is cool for foxes. And of course, if you're looking at problems through multiple lenses, chances are you're going to develop reasons why, you know, here are seven different reasons why it likely will happen. Here are eight different reasons why it likely won't happen. And when you try and balance those things, you're very often you're going to end up saying, well, you know, maybe 65 percent. 
So they're going to be less confident than the hedgehogs. They're much less likely to say that something is certain or something is impossible. Gardner says that the way foxes are able to aggregate all of the information they're compiling ultimately makes them much more accurate than hedgehogs. None of our experts use this exact reference to foxes or hedgehogs, but it's pretty clear that they all rely on fox-like thinking in making their predictions. Here's what NFL.com's Matt Harmon said when we asked him how many different analytical lenses he recommends using. As many as you possibly can get your hands on. Uh, And I mean, obviously, I work a detailed process with wide receivers um, and other people do that for other positions. Those are important, you know, contextualizing their play on the field through an analytical approach, um, but also looking into the pace of the offense, the situations that they find themselves in, you know, pace and, and historical trends in, in play calling, and also looking at a player's physical ability through his athletic measurements and his past production are super important as well. So, I mean, any method that you can get your hand on, it's I, I don't think you should ever take something off the table. Pat Fitzmorris of Sports Illustrated shares a similar sentiment. You know, I'm always open to new metrics and it's like the fantasy community has gotten so large and there's so many uh, sharp people doing this kind of work that there are interesting metrics and ideas being put forth like literally every week. And I'm open to all of it. You know, I just try to weigh as much of it as I possibly can. And uh, I try to keep an open mind. Rich Rebar of Roto World thinks that some fantasy analysts engage in hedgehoggy thinking and they're only hurting themselves when they do so. The market is so saturated now with individual player analysis that analysts are starting to get tunnel vision for their takes uh, on players, and they tend to let that tunnel vision for their takes stick into their their drafting plans, their drafting strategy, uh, and you can really use that to your advantage. If you're someone that's going to never turn yourself off or on to a player completely and you know stays in with a wide lens of this could happen uh, if this domino falls, and this, could, this is what I deem the most probable scenario, but then this could happen, that's going to give you a giant advantage in leagues. Earlier in the episode, I promised that we would get to some wide receivers who had league-winning potential, and that's exactly what Rich Rebar has for us. And it was clear that Rich's focus on envisioning a range of outcomes also informed his prediction for 2016. You know, I'm all about the Dante Moncrief hype train this year, and it's just tied into looking at his costs and, you know, encompassing his range of outcomes. I mean, you look at his splits with Andrew Luck last year, he was on 11 touchdown pace for the season with Luck under center. The rub there is, is the trade-off for the touchdowns is that he was held under 50 receiving yards uh, in five of those seven games as well. Now, I'm not overly concerned about the, that lower yardage output because the Colts have no depth at, at wide receiver at all. I mean, after Moncrief, Hilton, and Philip Dorsett, they've got Quan Bray and Josh Boyce. You know, Dwayne Allen's really not a great receiving tight end. They don't even have a tight end, too, that's going to cut into targets this year. So, I mean, it's hard to envision a scenario where Moncrief stays healthy and doesn't blow past 120 targets, you know, coming from Andrew Luck. And if you're going to give me 120 targets, you know, coming from an offense uh, that has the high scoring capability of the Colts and and I'm already getting the best red zone player of the group. Uh, you know, I'm going to take a play on that low efficiency of, you know, 6.9 yards per target, which was 67th in the league of all receivers, you know, making an upward spike rather than staying on that downward plane, you know, or, or, or staying neutral. So, I mean, even if he even if he stays the same player on fantasy football calculator, he's his ADP is wide receiver 34, which is league winning type of, uh, of cost right there for a guy that could possibly be a, a top 12 receiver, you know, and be a guy that has, you know, uh, 1,000 to 1,200 yards and flirt with with 10 to 15 touchdowns. 
Matt Harmon relied on his understanding of target shares and also his proprietary wide receiver metric to come up with his 2016 prediction. I think that drafting the Chargers receivers, including Keenan Allen, most certainly as the top one there, uh, will be a league winning idea. I'm pretty convinced that Keenan Allen will finish within the top six of wide receivers this year, just based on the target share that he's going to own in that offense. And also, I just recently put him through reception perception, and he only really runs a small handful of routes, but he's just thumping defenders on those crossing routes, you know, the shallow slants, the deep posts, the intermediate digs. And just, it's just funny. He's like almost unstoppable at creating separation on those few routes. It's pretty clear that he's one of the best receivers in the NFL. Another problem that people often complain about in fantasy is that groupthink eventually takes over. I mean, if you're on Twitter, you've experienced this. Someone starts talking about a player, then everyone else chimes in. The echo chamber is hyping Felix Jones. And then the next year, it's David Wilson. Oh, man, I David Wilson, uh, just even saying that name and just remembering those highlights, you shined so bright in your brief time with us. Uh, what could have been? Anyways, it's hard sometimes to think that these guys can't bust because everyone's on them. It just seems like they're a can't miss proposition, but that's not always the case. And in super forecasting, they offer a specific strategy to counteract against groupthink. And it's called constructive confrontation. And this is something you'll also see on Twitter. And it won't save you from bad decisions necessarily, but it will at least make sure that every idea has been thoroughly vetted. It's an idea we also heard from several of the fantasy analysts. Here's Sigmund Bloom of Football Guys describing how he uses constructive confrontation to make his predictions better. So I like to seek out other fantasy analysts on Twitter who feel opposite on a player. And I usually will aggressively debate with them, not because I think they're wrong, because I want to stress test all of my arguments. I want the other smartest people in the industry who feel opposite of me to give me the best case against my case. So I really have looked for holes in my argument. And I think that's one way as a community that we can strengthen each other. And I know sometimes I get my sword and shield out on Twitter. And I get my sword and shield out on Twitter because I want people to get their sword and shield out and bang away at my shield too, because this is how we're going to test each other. And yes, sometimes I do go back and rethink things. I go back and change my rankings after banging away with somebody about a player that I feel very strongly about and they feel very strongly about. Jake Seeley also likes to get his sword and shield out on occasion. I don't think I do it very effectively. <laughs> I think it actually comes off on Twitter as I, I've kind of got this feeling. And it's, it's something I've done for my entire life. I know I come off as a little bit of uh, abrasive and I would say almost arrogant to the point where it's like people always assume that if, you know, like, let's say I was talking about LaShawn McCoy all week and then somebody put out an article talking about how he's going to be a bust, you know, and I comment to it and I say, oh, you know, I think McCoy's going to be a top 10 running back with blah, blah, blah. I, I don't see that. Why do you, you know, I, I get a lot of people who are like, and that's my personality. I understand. But people are like, oh, OK, Jake's right. Jake's right again. And I get that. So you can probably do it better than I can. But I absolutely do try to engage because I want to try and see the reasons. That's why the community is so great. And that's why you know I say this every year, too, is as good as my rankings might be, as good as John's might be and everybody who's in the top five at Fantasy Pros. If you just take one person's rankings or one person's opinion any given year, you're, you're, you're an idiot. That's all I'll say. <laughs> While constructive confrontation can lead to better decisions in a lot of cases, Pat Fitzmorris highlights a potential pitfall of having so many credible voices disagreeing on a topic. Hearing a lot of sharp minds debate which uh, Baltimore receiver is the one to own 
this year, you know, and all the arguments are good. And it's like only one of them can be right or they're all wrong. And it's going to be just varying uh, breakout guys from week to week, different guys carrying the day. So, um, yeah, yeah, it is easy to get overloaded. At this point, it might seem overwhelming to be able to take all of the information and all of the competing arguments and then be able to condense them into a good prediction. I mean, is it even realistic to think that you could read every Roto World blurb and listen to opposing arguments from smart people like Sigmund Bloom and Jake Seeley and then have any idea what you should think? You know, if you're spending time on Twitter and seeing these conversations go back and forth, it can often feel like, oh yeah, that's a good point, I'll do that. Oh no, 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 that's a good point, I'll do that. And then it's just whiplash and you're left sitting there with, wait, who am I supposed to draft? And that information overload is always a concern. And Gardner says that people who make good predictions have a strategy for dealing with it. Information overload is a real problem. I mean, in today's world, of course. And so you actually do have to be cognizant of that problem and you have to tackle it. And the super forecasters do that by being methodical. They don't simply roam around in the information forest and hope somehow the answer will simply emerge by magic. What they do instead is they break problems down and they say, okay, how likely is this thing to happen? Well, what would it take for this thing to happen? Oh, okay. So, okay. Now, now that I know that, well, then how likely is that thing to happen? How likely is that thing to happen? And eventually you can narrow and narrow it down so that when you go to do your research, you go into the information forest but you don't just wander around randomly. You go looking for a few specific trees, okay? So you're looking for very specific forms of information. And then once you've got that information, you're able to plug it back into your analysis and then ultimately produce your forecast. And it's that methodical breaking down of the forecast problem that allows super forecasters to deal with information overload. A lot of this should be fitting into place now. Gardner's advice to break problems down into their parts should sound familiar because it's not that different from what Jeff Ratcliffe said earlier about breaking an NFL offense down into its parts. If you read a vague report that some player is in the best shape of his career, I'm looking at you, Eddie Lacy, in this mythical P90X, you don't have to sit there like a deer in the headlights and wonder if that means anything. You can break the problem down by asking what assumptions would need to be true for the player to have a breakout season. Speaking of breakout seasons, Sigmund Bloom's prediction for 2016 focuses on a tight end with a history of great baseline production. Certainly a player that's going to return great profit as Martellus Bennett in New England. He's an accomplished player. He's in an accomplished offense. We know that New England will run two and even three tight end sets enough that Bennett will basically be a starter. Tom Brady will focus in on the mismatches. Teams are going to pay more attention to Rob Gronkowski than Martellus Bennett. They've been working together on red zone plays. I think you're going to see Bennett score at least eight to 10 touchdowns. I say at least, and this is where the league winning part comes in. If Rob Gronkowski does get hurt, and he's been on a knocking on wood right now, uh, he's been on a good streak of health, then Martellus Bennett does become a league winner. He does become an accomplished receiving tight end with an accomplished quarterback, uh, one that can make the number one tight end. We know he has the ability. We know he has the situation. But even without that, I think you'll see him around 55, 60 catches, 750, 800 yards, eight to 10 touchdowns. And he could do even more. Because if they decide this is the player that will let beat us, not Edelman, not Gronkowski, 
not Deion Lewis out of the backfield, uh, then Tom Brady's going to find him early and often. And Pat Fitzmorris's strategy for 2016 will make a lot of sense to anyone who listened to our episode on Zero RB. I was at a craps table pretty recently, and uh, all the shooters were icier than the White Walkers from Game of Thrones, and I was losing money hand over fist. But betting don't pass is socially unacceptable, and nobody wants to be the pariah of the table. And uh, I was kind of thinking as far as fantasy football goes, it's a lot more socially acceptable to bet don't pass. And uh, there's some running backs that I'm betting don't pass on big time this year. And I'm thinking of Latavius Murray, Matt Jones, and Jeremy Langford. They all have rookie backups or guys vying to be backups with uh, DeAndre Washington backing up Murray, Keith Marshall backing up Jones, and Jordan Howard backing up Langford. And I'm going to bet don't pass on all those guys by putting chips on all of those rookie backups. And uh, my prediction is that two of those three rookies are going to outscore the starters that they're playing behind. It might be important to mention at this point that even though we've tried to give you some of the best practices for making predictions, it's still incredibly hard to make good ones. I mean, just think back on your fantasy team. How many times have you hit on every single player? How many times have you hit on half the players? I mean, it is a very hard thing to do. In fact, some of the predictions in this episode might end up seeming silly in a matter of weeks. All it takes is an injury or a suspension, and all of these good plans we laid out can just go in the garbage. But Dan Gardner warned us of problems like this and said that a trait that super forecasters share is intellectual humility. When we asked our fantasy analysts what they'd learned from making predictions, this is what they had to say. Uh, That I'm never going to be right all the time. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to be wrong just as much as you're right? (laughs) It's it's really friggin' hard (laughs) because uh, you will be wrong often. Well, for one, how hard it is. uh, That's one thing I've certainly learned. That you're going to be wrong. And the key to being wrong is figuring it out very early. Um, I've learned that sometimes the guy who is boys with Dennis Rodman and Gary Busey uh, gets the Republican nomination for president of the United States. So even though a good portion of this episode has been fantasy analysts giving you their league-winning ideas for 2016, it's important to remember that some of them are going to be wrong. It's just how it is. And an interesting thing happened as we were interviewing Dan Gardner. When he heard that Fantasyland is a sports podcast, he said, oh, well, sports predictions are usually pretty good. Gardner is used to covering people like Tom Friedman of the New York Times, who talks in vague future babble about things that may or may not happen. Gardner is used to people who treat international affairs like a fortune telling booth on the boardwalk. But in sports, you make a prediction, and then in three to six months, you find out if you're right. That's really cool. We always get to know whether we were right. Sigmund Bloom pointed out it might not be a coincidence that one of the most accurate political pundits also has a background in sports. Nate Silver started out with Dakota, right? He was doing baseball projections. So it makes sense. I mean, the two things go hand in hand. We're taking a closed set of considerations. We have data in the past. We know that things are changing. We're not quite sure the rate of change. We're trying to factor that in. It just makes sense that fantasy projections, sports projections, and political projections would go hand in hand and and the techniques would translate. And uh, I always thought that was 
it, it tickled me though whenever uh, in the 2008 whenever Nate Silver became this massive phenomenon that you know just he sharpened his skills on fantasy sports and well that's where everybody should start out I guess Next time on Fantasyland, an episode about the late round quarterback draft strategy featuring J.J. Zacharyson. It being a passing league means the guys that are bad at quarterback are passing a lot as well. And given that, then you know that late in your drafts, in the 14th and the 15th round of your drafts, there are going to be quarterbacks that are going to be dropping back 30 plus times per game. I mean, Every season over the last couple of years, every team is dropping back 25 plus times per game. And all that means is that you have a larger sample size to choose from. And when you have a larger sample size to choose from, then you can go late with your quarterback and you don't have to worry about getting one early. Thank you for listening to Fantasyland, the podcast that covers everything you didn't know you wanted to know about fantasy sports. Special thanks to all of our great guests in this episode, Dan Gardner, Sigmund Bloom, Jake Seeley, Pat Doherty, Pat Fitzmorris, Matt Harmon, Rich Rebar, Sean Corner, Pat Mayo, John Paulson, Jeff Ratcliffe, Pat Thorman, and Kyle Wachtel. Be sure to check the show notes in the episode write-up on rotoviz.com slash fantasyland for more information about our guests. If you've missed any of our previous episodes, you can find those on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you rate and review the show on iTunes, you'll be entered to win a drawing for a free RotoViz hoodie. We'll be announcing those winners in the next few weeks via the RotoViz forums. Also, thanks to our sponsors, ffdraftprep.com and RotoViz. Be sure to take advantage of their special offers for Fantasyland listeners. If you'd like to contact us, we're always interested in feedback and are also looking to grow our team. You can reach us via email at fantasylandpod at gmail.com or shoot us a message on Twitter, also at fantasylandpod. Our producers are Fantasy Douche, Matthew Friedman, and Patrick Corain. Our intern is Alan Jackman, and I'm your host, Peter Roverzet.